Hello, and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Renee Wynn, the CEO of RP Wing Consulting. Prior to starting her own consulting firm, Renee was the CIO of NASA for nearly five years. Before that, she was the Deputy Assistant Administrator and Deputy CIO of the EPA. At NASA, she ran global and off-global IT infrastructure, as well as working in cybersecurity in space and terra firma. Needless to say, Renee has some amazing stories to share with us today. In this episode, she discusses NASA's approach to IT, the U.S. government and cloud computing, the role collaboration plays on the International Space Station, and so much more. So please enjoy this interview between Renee Wynn and your host, Steve Hamm. So, Renee, it's great to have you on. And it occurs to me, we've been doing this for two, going on to the third year now. And I don't think we've ever really had a government person on. So it's really a different perspective. And since you're going to talk to us about NASA and the EPA, I think those are very interesting areas for a lot of people. So I'm really looking forward to, to talking to you here. So if you would... Please start by describing your recent history with NASA. You were an important technology leader there, just a, really a tremendous a tremendous agency that a lot of people have a lot of interest in and that really has to use a lot, deploy a lot of IT in addition to all those other kinds of technology. So tell us about that. But also, I know that you're now working as a consultant, RP Wind Consulting. So tell us a little bit about that as well. Yes, Steve, it's great to be on the show today. And wow, the first government official. So I'm very excited to present to the listeners maybe a perspective of being a 30-year United States federal government employee who took an oath to the United States Constitution and someone who still carries it with her whenever she travels with her computer. So I'm excited to be here today. So my last five years with the United States government was serving at NASA, and I had the privilege of being the chief information officer for the entire agency where I ran global operations for IT services, including off the globe. So Steve, I hope we get to talk a little bit about serving the astronauts from the United States government, as well as other countries who were also on the International Space Station. It's very exciting to be able to support that. Also very scary, I might add. Um, And so it was great fun. And it was a lot of hard work, especially when you look at cybersecurity and you look at the satellites that have been in orbit since the 70s, and they're still very much operational and providing data for the benefit of humanity, sometimes weather data, information about the Earth, or just information about our solar system or the universe. And those systems were developed when cybersecurity really wasn't on people's minds. And so we did some, we had to do a lot of work to really take a look at the risks associated with space and space operations. So that was a lot of fun to do that. It was also very educational. As the CIO, I needed to sit and learn first and foremost before we took off doing anything, before we hit launch. So I'll go ahead and use that joke once, at least during all of this. So my time at NASA was really providing improved global cybersecurity posture as well as the space posture for NASA, and then providing IT services and and handling an IT transformational project that affects the entire agency, which kicked off then a second transformational project, which is nearly finished now. I turned that over to my deputy. And before that, I was at EPA, and I spent 25 years there. And most of that time was spent in mission, the cleanup of highly contaminated properties, Superfund program as it's known. And I focused on the facilities that were owned and operated by the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy. So I worked in a bit of a niche market, but I got to learn about nuclear waste as well as unexploded ordnance, not things that you graduate from college saying that you're going to learn about. Very important things, though. So we, we know that. When I think about NASA, NASA is an innovator and also an early adopter of space exploration technology. And But was NASA or is NASA also an early adopter of information technology? Well, I think it depends. So everything in space is a one of a kind. And so, Steve, you're absolutely right. To imagine bringing data 
back about the universe, you have to convert that into questions. And then those questions have to get converted into capability, technical capability. And then you have to design things with batteries and sensors, propulsion systems, and the like for our, what I always call the flying assets. When it comes to IT, for the IT that is attached to a flying asset, as I've mentioned before, you have to be very careful with changes if you can make those changes, because though you don't want to disrupt the capability or the integrity of the data that you're bringing back, because a lot of times you do a data comparison, 1969 to 1980, and you want the integrity to all be the same. So you're comparing apples to apples. When it comes to terra firma and what's going on down here, and maybe the more typical business IT enterprises, there are times when NASA was very receptive to that change because they saw a need that an innovative technology could be used for. And that's always great, sort of a mission application or a mission support application. When you needed to change the whole entire enterprise, it was much more complicated and a much larger presence. And so that's when people would become a lot more cautious because they didn't want to break existing processes. To me, the big changes that I faced to deal with was more about the process change and what that would do with mission and mission support and less about adopting change and new innovation. But I will say that the cybersecurity side was a little bit even more anomalous than what I've just mentioned, because it's not something that people generally understand. It's an invisible threat. Mm -hmm. It is hard to describe to people because we can't see our data being stolen. So that took a lot more imagination to help people understand the importance of it. We didn't talk about RP Wind Consulting. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Steve, so when I left the government, it was at the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, I delayed my retirement to make sure things were a little bit more settled instead of leaving on March 31st, 2020. And I was going to go back to work. I hope to go back to work, but it was also a hard time for businesses to be thinking about bringing on another executive. Mm -hmm. And after organizing a few things around my house, I was completely bored and I was approached by a couple of businesses to say, could you help us out? Can we use your experience at NASA and in the federal government to help us be better? And they asked me to be a 1099 And Steve, I promptly asked, what's that? After getting that lesson, I then turned and got got on board a couple of lawyers and I got myself started. And I talked to a few people that have coached me through starting my own business. So I ended up with actually a four-prong strategy or portfolio in my business. I do independent consultants to businesses, a couple of tech firms. I do some public sector advisory boards for some very technical businesses. Then I am going to serve on corporate boards beginning this year. And then finally, probably in 2023, I'll be, I hope to sign on with a venture capitalist firm to help consult with them on evaluating technology, hardware, and software businesses for future use across the globe. So that's what I do. Well, that is going to be fascinating. I mean, the whole thing sounds interesting, but that I think working with the VCs, getting that those first peaks at some of these great ideas and figuring out, is this going to be the killer app of our era? It must be so exciting. So I think that'll be great for you. Yeah, yeah I am very fortunate. And I've set up a strategy that is both short-term to long-term, yeah. uh, looking at the corporate boards and the the VC work and having that around for long-term, I will stay with my clients in the public sector advisory boards and the independent consulting as long as they'll have me. But I did have to do some soul searching in terms of what was feasible from a long-term business plan. Hey, let's look backwards now. 
30 years in the government in these executive positions, many of them. What are the most important lessons that you've learned about large governmental organizations adopting and putting to use next generation technologies? (laughs) What I've learned, and this is an underscore, is it's all about people. It's people and myself included, we get attached to our technology. We know how to use it. We're very proficient at it. And then you get a simple update and the buttons aren't where you thought they were. And now all of a sudden things that were muscle memory, so to speak, have now come back to the forefront of how can I do this? And maybe some things broke. You might've had some APIs or something set up in the background and all of a sudden things are breaking. And so now you have to go back and fix it. And so you feel like a human that you're going backwards when a new technology is either introduced or even an update is simply provided to you. So what I always tried to do, and I was fortunate to have such a terrific team at NASA is really focused on how the technology is being used and think about how do we approach sharing with them what's coming and how to prepare for what's coming. As an example, I got the opportunity in my career to bring into two separate agencies, Office 365 in the cloud. And there's a lot of details technically that you need to attend to. And then there's a lot of details on the people part. And so when I did it at NASA, we did a lot of short videos, tried to make it so people could earn badges by doing more of those videos, by doing more to prepare themselves. And the team was also able to bring in and do the changeover Office 365. Basically, most computers only took about 15 minutes to change. So then we had to figure out how to tell people when the change was over because they were like, hey, it didn't work. And then they'd call the help desk and we're like, "Mm, it did work. We can tell, go look here at the bottom. So what was very interesting is, is we forgot about the part. If you make it too easy, they might not know that you've even done anything for them. Interesting. Very interesting. When I think about different kinds of organizations and their, and their goals and their, and their cultures, So I think about Facebook, move fast, break things. Well, you were in exactly the opposite thing. You you have to use powerful technologies, but you can't break anything. So how do you manage that? Especially in these, especially in, in NASA where you're flying people around in space and you just don't want anything bad to happen. (laughs) Steve, it's very astute of you to recognize NASA's mission. And the first A in NASA is aeronautics and air safety and sustainability. So imagine the IT that supports flying from place to place comfortably and safely. And so technology before you deploy anything has to be tested and the testers have to try and break it. Yeah. That that's the point is if we can break it because believe me there were folks at NASA that broke some of the technology because they're that curious and that talented and so we had to get ahead of them sometimes so that it wouldn't break when they needed it the most but that comes from any CIO whether you're in the federal government or in the private sector you need to understand how people work And how the technology is enabling the business, or for me, how is technology enabling the mission? And then you work backwards from that to if you can do an upgrade, then you would do an upgrade. There were places we won't do an upgrade. You're just not going to do it because, like I mentioned before, if it's attached to a flying asset, you can't break it because that data, somebody depends on that data for maybe a scientific thesis. Or in other cases, we rely on weather data And that's really critical to human safety when you think of weather data and the like. Yeah. yeah. Now, I want to talk about cloud computing for a minute here. Mm -hmm. I I know that several years ago, I'm not sure exactly what year, the U.S. government began adopting cloud computing, the cloud computing model, really aggressively. Tell us, when and why did that happen? How has the transition gone? 
and how have barriers been overcome? So I have been in the tech business since cloud computing was available. So I joined at EPA CIO office in 2011, and I mentioned that we did Office 365. That was the first instance of Office 365 in a cloud for the United States government. So, So what it really is, is that software was being provided as a cloud service. Software as a service instead of loading it onto everyone's computers and having to go desk side to make sure they got the latest upgrade. And so those changes happened as computers and software and hardware changed for faster delivery and greater capability because you could load new capabilities into the cloud capability and then you could turn on and off whether you let it into your computers or not. And so it was a very exciting But it also changed the talent that was needed inside the United States government, and it changed the flavor of partnership. So now national security and cybersecurity was my responsibility at both EPA as well at NASA. And when we controlled the hardware and software, yeah, it's your mistake and that's scary, but it's your mistake. I've spent since 2011 helping software, hardware providers, and the government contractors understand the importance of national security and cybersecurity and how the two go hand in hand. And at NASA, there was an even an added element of difficulty, and that is human safety. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of technology, so to speak, as I talk, at the end of my technology, we're astronauts in the International Space Station. And the last thing I wanted was a cyber event that created an international incident. And so people that I worked with, our partners and our vendors, we had to all come to an understanding of the importance of cybersecurity and what you did, you the vendor provider, what it could mean to NASA. And we had to do the same. It was definitely a two-way street. So it really changed relationships with providers and the United States government I hope to the benefit, at least in all of my relationships, it was largely to the benefit. And I say largely because people march to different paces. And so there were certainly some challenging conversations I needed to have with some of the providers about cybersecurity and the importance of making sure that you meet federal standards. Yeah. yeah. On this podcast, we, we focus a lot on data and some on big data. I would imagine NASA has a lot of big streaming data. And how have you dealt with that, especially with the cloud platforms, the cloud technologies? Yes. So some of NASA's greatest discoveries or some of the discoveries by scientists across the globe are from data that comes from space. And gosh, at last count, when I left, NASA was pulling down more than 60 terabytes of data per day from space. And I am pretty sure that that has doubled because since I left the Mars rover with Perseverance, with a helicopter named Ingenuity, Mm -hmm. has landed on Mars. And there's a lot of data coming back from Mars, doing rock samples, just selfie pictures, which are great to see. So follow it on Instagram. And so that just gives you an example of the type of data that comes back and data to me and and frankly to NASA data it becomes information information becomes knowledge and knowledge can become action and those actions can be discovering new planets discovering something more about earth and it can be improving the capability to predict let's say hurricanes and happen to have met some folks in that area and NASA with the NOAA have improved the precision of hurricanes, which is both an economic benefit as well as a human safety benefit. And so it was great. I mean, that's what data is all about, is getting those insights and turning it into benefits and value. Yeah, I think a lot of people are familiar with the American model for hurricanes and then the European model and how they're a little bit different from each other. Now, of course, most of that comes from NOAA, right? Or, Or 
What does NASA contribute to that? So some of the satellites are NOAA satellites, and some of them are actually NASA satellites. And there are now other satellites that fly, and they collect data, and that data comes back to Earth, and that goes into models. You know, there's certainly a big process about what goes into the models to feed and teach the models how to be better. And most of those models, actually all those models, are run on high-performance computing and then they do the visualization from that. So it is a partnership with NOAA, National Weather Service, NASA, and others. Private sector are getting into launching satellites for weather, covering continents that may not be as covered as well as the United States and Europe. And together that will improve these models. And maybe we'll see a convergence of the models, or maybe we'll continue to be separate But even in their separation, Steve, you see a lot of learning and exchange of papers and that between scientists across the globe focused here specifically on hurricanes and modeling. I would think that they've got to converge, right? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't work in the area. I just know that I I, I got a great opportunity. So I just come from EPA and I got to go over to the... Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. And that's where one of NASA's high-performance computing is. And I got to talk to a couple of the scientists that did the hurricane modeling. And they demonstrated to me how the model had improved from Hurricane Rita to the Hurricane Sandy. And and both were devastating hurricanes, right? But the model prediction band got much tighter. So the people beyond the band prediction, they didn't have to drop what they were doing and prepare for a hurricane, right? Because with great certainty, the United States government in this instance, NOAA and the National Hurricane Center could report, here's our prediction, here's our model, here's our band. So you knew whether you needed to prepare or not. And preparing is a lost opportunity. or a change in opportunity because you do want to have safety for people in that. So the conversions, I can't speak to it, but the sharing of the data to make models better, I think we all benefit from that and we see the benefits today. Now, how does the cloud, the availability of big cloud storage and cloud management systems, how does that affect the ability to do those kinds of models and the massive number of simulations that are done and all that kind of, all the machine learning that's done. How does cloud change the game there? So cloud can help. And I'm going to, I'm going to go maybe to a smaller agency example here. And, and the reason is, is, well, no, I'll stick with NASA. So first, your mission needs to be designed for the cloud use itself. And you have to weigh the benefits and costs of shifting to the cloud or housing it at one of NASA's data centers. And NASA had uh, several of them. We were around 30, I think, when I left. That's from memory. So that's a fuzzy quote. How's that? Yeah. So if you thought that your mission could benefit from the elasticity and scalability of the cloud, like scalability in your compute power, then by all means, the mission would start to be designed to that cloud. And you also had to make sure the cloud provider was going to be around, right? These missions run for decades. I don't think I mentioned by name, but I was thinking of Voyager that was launched in the seventies and it is still bringing Voyager 2, still bringing data down today. And it was in the news this past summer because there was a couple little issues in getting data, but that's still operating. So from the 70s to 2020, that's 50 years. So you got to think about the longevity of where you're moving your data and, and making sure you can shift your data maybe from one place to another. And so we're seeing the uptake and adoption of cloud use considerably at NASA because these missions are being designed with greater scalability. They want the greater elasticity and you're seeing a lot more onboard compute in your satellites because they're getting more powerful, right? As everything gets powerful here on this planet, 
we are able to extend that capability to low Earth orbit and beyond. So it it is being adopted. It is definitely beneficial. And you weigh your, your compute power, how best to support the mission and the mission's functionality as you predict it, and then you design accordingly. So you you definitely see the uptake in that for our satellite missions or for the satellite missions at NASA. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's really interesting. Now, without telling any state secrets, I, I hope you can describe one or two of the more interesting technology projects that you oversaw at NASA, specifically data-heavy ones. I mean, the Mars rover, I think, is after you left, but Hubble, I mean, what was what was the most data-intensive application that you ever dealt with? And, and how did you how did you manage it? So you know, funny, I'm gonna confess now. I just looked at our science missions as science missions as terabytes of data every day and ensuring and working with our science mission directorate, which is divided in like heliophysics, astrophysics, et cetera, and working with them to make sure that they had the compute power. And they were shifting definitely to the cloud because they could see greater use of data that were older and secondary uses and tertiary uses. And I know the data folks hate for you to use that term, but that's what we were really looking at is reusing the data we had in different ways in scientific. So while I wasn't there for the launch of the Mars rover, I was there for a good portion of its design and that. And so uh, that was done. That project was led out of the Jet Propulsion Lab of NASA, which is actually a federal facility research and development corporation. So it's quasi-federal government. And they were using cloud computing and worked very closely to ensure that they had the right compute power, as well as how to design and collect data and fly a helicopter on another planet. So that is, to me, a really cool use of cloud computing. Yeah. There's not much of an atmosphere there, is there? (laughs) There is not. There is not. And the really smart folks of NASA and JPL, they figured all of that out. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. yeah. And maybe one of the projects that I got to touch very closely was delivering Office 365, migrating the astronauts on the International Space Station. So that was the International Space Station is 200 to 400 miles off the face of the Earth. Right. And we needed to deliver to the astronauts their email and upgrade their email system. So my team my brilliant team and in partnership with the Johnson Space Center and the International Space Station Program Office, we were able to technically figure that out. And we were able to make that switch for the astronauts on station, as we call it. And we delivered Office 365. And that was in the clouds. And we were delivering email above the clouds. Beyond the clouds. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's very good. I just love the International Space Station. Just the idea of it's collaborative. People from different countries setting aside whatever tensions there may be between their countries or, or not, and just focusing on the common good of humanity and, and of the advancement of science. And I just think collaboration is a hell of a great thing for humanity. And I think competition has its, has its role as well. But I think that the International Space Station really makes the point, if you can collaborate you can really do fantastic things. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We saw a lot of great collaborations come from the International Space Station and and a benefit of relationships with other countries. Space can be a common bond for folks. And and it's great. I'll give you an example of a collaboration I personally think is just so amazing. And so Japan launched a satellite that landed a robot on an asteroid. Mm. And the United States did as well. The United States mission was, is OSIRIS-REx. Right, right. So Japan's sample of an asteroid that came back to this planet in Japan, Japan is sharing some of those samples with the United States. 
And those samples will go to the Moon Rock Library. Yes, there is such a thing at the Johnson Space Center. So lots of scientists can study an asteroid that's been taken from space and returned from space without burning up like an asteroid usually would. Yeah. Right. And the United States samples will be back, I think, next year, 2023. It might be 2024. And I know that NASA's policies, we do share our rock library through an application process, right? And so they'll be sharing of those rocks in collaboration with the science and the data that's collected from it. So there's an example of a recent and probably something that people didn't realize was going on that samples are being collected from asteroids and being returned to this planet. And they're going to be studied and that science is going to be shared across the globe. And we're going to collaborate over that science. That's great. Have you seen the movie Don't Look Up yet? (laughs) No, I have not yet. (laughs) Bad thing happens with an asteroid. Give away the ending. Hey, you mentioned cybersecurity a couple times before, and I understand you're preparing a TED talk about cybersecurity. Can you give us a sneak peek of what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, so I'm very excited and I'm honored to be asked to give a TEDx talk. And my TEDx talk is going to be on cybersecurity and space. And the idea is to hopefully continue to advance the focus on making sure that anything launched into space is as cyber secure as it can be. And there's a lot of different techniques that you can use. So I will talk about a few ways to do that and promote what um, is commonly referred to as good neighbor policies. So low earth orbit is an economic boom right now. More private companies are headed to space and gaining benefits from being in space. And so if you're going up in space, you better make sure that you have good control over your satellite, whether it be the harsh environmental conditions of space themselves or those that are launched by nefarious actors. And so I'll talk a little bit about that, some strategies to preventing it. And I might just add a few other discussions about dangers in space as well, which is about the harsh environment, but things that you need to think about and hopefully promote the idea and and have people that develop satellites really begin to make cybersecurity part of the way they develop their satellites. Yeah, interesting. When I think about malign actors, I mean, a lot of them are kind of financially oriented or national security oriented. But some of them are just evil and, and they just want to, they just want to screw things up and they want to be, they want their, their work to be seen. Is that something that you see around some of the satellites or even the International Space Station? And, or are these communications networks just so locked down that that's not a factor? So cybersecurity is driven by fun, fame, or fortune, or a combination of the three, which is what you just described, Steve. I I give it the three Fs, right? So in a non-classified environment, one, it, it is possible. Satellites are connected to Earth through their mission control centers and that. And the way mission control centers are designed, their identity and access management capabilities their architecture of the mission control centers. And so there's mission control centers for science. I like to describe them as apartment buildings. So if you imagine apartment building and odors from something happening in an apartment, uh, let's make it a, a good smell. Like somebody's making, you know, a lovely cinnamon, boiling cinnamon, and it just smells like delicious cookies, or they're making chocolate chip cookies and makes you smile thinking about chocolate chip cookies, also makes you hungry and wish that you had one. Well, that smell emanates because the apartment buildings are all interconnected. Well, cybersecurity is about the interconnected nature of our devices. And those devices in space, if you aren't careful and haven't designed for cybersecurity, you could unintentionally be interconnected with something you really don't want to be connected with. 
And so I try to bring to light that you need to think differently and think about protecting your assets. If anything, you need to protect your reputation. And so what is possible in terra firma is possible in space. And that's why I plan to talk a little bit about. Now, I know that you did serve for many years in the EPA, which is really, I've talked, I've raved about NASA, but the EPA as well. I mean, I remember the first Earth Day. Rachel Carson is my God, things like that. And I wonder if you can talk about, you haven't been there for five years, I know, but there's a lot of attention these days with figuring out how we can be more sustainable, how to deal with global warming, climate change, things like that. When you look around, and just based on all the knowledge that you acquired over these years, how can technology help the United States and the world and the communities around the world become more sustainable and resilient? I'm so glad you asked that, Steve. So I'll go back to the hurricanes and I've got a couple other ideas to share as well. So with hurricanes, rebuilding after a hurricane, what you're seeing are the data that we understand about our planet and that we understand about water and flooding. Cities, after a significant event, and they have to, let's say they replace infrastructure or rebuild housing, if they're going to rebuild the housing, they're building it more resilient to the next flood or the next water gushing into the subway or something like that. So you're seeing resilience being built into infrastructure that itself in the cities, especially coastal cities. Then you've got food. So California has had its fires and, and that has affected crops. I know it's affected grapes because I personally like wine, but it's affected other crops. And so understanding weather and its effect, moisture, whether you're getting rain, too much rain, not enough rain, all of that data are now being used to help farmers what to plant, when to plant, when to be cautious, what's going to happen, what are your risks associated with it. So farmers themselves can make more informed decisions about the risks they may be facing during the growing season. And then that downstream effect is you and our access to the food that they're providing and what can and can't hit our table and the price of what's hitting our table or the table of the restaurants. And so you have a supply chain issue that we've all certainly learned about during the pandemic. And so there's a lot of data from space about the planet, and there's data that didn't emanate from space. It's just here on earth, the sensors that are here on earth and being taken. And that is is being implemented in making changes or risk-based changes in the agricultural business. And then that obviously affects you and I, and they use a lot of information for energy sources and how to find good energy sources. Hopefully more sustainable energy sources are coming online, which we're starting to see. And that, and so there's a lot going on in this area that I find very exciting. And we're, as humans, we're tackling it. And the advent of electric cars, it's another good thing, although battery disposal is the next challenge. With every iteration, there are solving challenges and the next challenges. And that's just what's so beautiful about, about people is we're naturally very curious. And so many of us are focused on improvement and meeting those challenges for improvements. Hey, I want to come back down to earth here for a minute. Now, you have had some very important chief information officer positions in in government. Yet here we are, it's 2021, and there still have not been a lot of women holding important CIO positions in large organizations. Why do you think that is? And what do you think should be done to change the situation? Yeah. So when I switched into IT world from environmental policy, in environmental policy was surrounded by great women. In fact, at EPA, they've had female administrators. And that was during my tenure there. So it was... Oh, that was Christy Todd Whitman. And, and there were some others, right? 
Yes, and Carol Browner, as well as Lisa Jackson. Yeah, so I was there for for all of them. And it was really great to look up and see women running things. Because then if you can see something, then you can more easily imagine what's possible for yourself. So here in 2022, uh, it feels like we are intentional in terms of looking for diversity in our positions. And that is diversity by ethnicity, by race, by gender. It's by thought, by scientific background. It's by all of the elements. It's it, Maybe it's a little bit about not hiring somebody who's just like you and then being able to put the work in for a really constructive, a positive, productive, and constructive relationship. And it's, it was disappointing when I got to IT. I was like, there is no line at the ladies' room. And darn, right. I'm going to try and change that. And I could change that where I was hiring. And I made very intentional effort to do that. I found if I didn't focus and do things differently to build a candidate pool of diverse candidates, then how was I expecting it to change? Right, right. So you need to be intentional. And I advertised federal government jobs. Yes, you got to go to the usajobs.gov to apply. But we posted them on jobs boards, women in tech, dice.com, wherever we found an organization that would have the talent that might want to come to NASA. That's where we advertised it. And I did have to pay for that posting, but it was a small price to pay for making a difference in long-term in the organization that I was running. So it begins with being intentional. Then you have to understand your own biases and you have to understand language you use. So I've been exposed to language that horrified me. And I mean that in a humorous way. When people talked about executives in this particular organization as gray beards, I was like, oh my gosh, one, I guess I'll never get that job because I'll never get a gray beard. Right. Right. Or if I got a gray beard, oh my goodness, I need to go talk to my doctor, right? How horrifying. I'm a little vanity here, right? (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, if I got a gray beard, I don't think I'd want to have that position. (laughs) So I I know. So I really thought about it. And then I realized I had the position and I had the power to make the change. Yeah. And I did. And I will say that after I had a fabulous conversation with the head of an organization who understood in the humorous way I presented it, how mortified I would be to be called a gray beard and how maybe I was being judged negatively because I wasn't a gray beard. I never heard the term again. A lot of it's about making people aware. Sensitive. Exactly. So what are your biases? We all have them. They've kept us alive for thousands of years. What is your language? Be open to listening. Drop you, you know, be humble and be intentional in terms of how you hire and take a look at your system structures, like hiring and make sure there aren't barriers to that. And so I think the bottom line is, is if you want to change your organization, you at the helm of that organization, you are the catalyst to change and you're going to have to stay on it and make it happen and stay on top of your culture to be inviting and welcoming to others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really inspiring. In January 2016, I went to a large event in Washington, D.C., Late, late in the January. And there were about 2 million people there. And I would say three quarters of them were women. And it was the Women's March. And it was so inspiring. And a lot of people carried this sign that said, the future is female. And right there, I said, I hope it is. I mean, I, I feel like, look at the 20th century. 
look at what men did in the 20th century. It's like, do you need much more evidence than that? So I really welcome these kinds of changes. And you see so many young women in university and college and, and now in graduate school and medical schools, it's more than 50%. And the next step is leadership. And I think what you've talked about is, is the ways that that's how it has to get done as you know, the awareness and people who want to make it happen. It's, it's not, doesn't happen by itself. So congratulations for doing that. Yeah. Thanks for that. And, and you're right. And thanks for joining the March. And it goes back to the points we started with Steve yeah. collaboration and the product that you developed is better with different thoughts, different perspectives uh, different experiences. Re, you know, I was raised in the Washington, D.C. area. I've had very different experiences from somebody who was raised in Louisiana. Right. Well, the way we go about and think about providing IT services has probably got that slant in it as well. And I mean that in a positive way. So when we talk it through and work it, we get a better product. Right. And you should thank women for drink holders in your car, right? right, we, right. we finally are starting to design cars and years ago. And we're like, yeah, well, I'm, I'm carrying the kids and I got a bottle in my hand. What am I supposed right. to do with it? Slopping it into a, a drink holder makes, makes the journey safer and all the inhabitants in the car happier. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think really need to dig deep and get to know the real you in the real up close and personal. We're coming to the end of our podcast. We usually, we, we like to talk about more personal things, lighter kinds of things. And as a storyteller, I know that people really enjoy hearing about a turning point and an aha moment when somebody gets it and starts behaving in a different way or, 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 interacting in a different way. So do you have a leadership aha moment you can tell us about? I do. And I'll present it to you with the greatest humility and vulnerability that I can. I had quested to be a leader. And, and I do know that you don't get to label yourself a leader because leader is not a position. It's motivating and inspiring others not dictating and demanding. It's not signing time cards either. That's a management supervisory job. And so I read a lot of books and I thought that by behaving as the books said that I was being a leader. Well, I went to an offsite retreat when I was in a new organization and I left. I hadn't been with the organization long, like weeks. And I left the meeting. We had a awesome organizational development person facilitating the discussion. And I pulled her aside. I said, listen, I've never had the training or been in an an organization where I felt so much tension between people. Hmm. And she said, Hey, come back with me to the office. I'm like, okay, great. So back to her office and she hands me this book and it says leadership and self-deception. And I was taken aback and, and I, I do not play poker for good reason. I just looked at her like, well, who do you think you are handing me a book that talks about self-deception, facial expression, not words. And she looks at me and she says, no, just go ahead and read it. Here's a little study guide and let me know. So I walk out, trust the process, right? She's an organizational development professional. I'm not. So I crack open that book. And I loved the book. And that book is about mindset and how you think of others. So this book had the missing piece to my quest for leadership. And I do hope that it, in every way that I tried to implement it, it showed that when you focus on others' needs, they know it. Mm. And you build a connection and the ability to inspire and lead through that connection because you are demonstrating genuinely their needs matters. When I interact with somebody and I just want to make it a transaction, you get my transaction done. Humans know it. And the way they behave towards me is probably off-putting. And then 
I behave off-putting and then they behave off-putting. And you get into this collusion of sorts and everybody's really comfortable with it and they wear it with self-justice. They justify, well, that person is just this. That stops with you. And that's what that book was about. And there's a series of books and I loved it. And I read the series of books and my husband did and my son did. And we try to use it as a signal to each other when we feel we're not being treated well to have those conversations. Cause sometimes it's just hard to signal to have the conversation because you're afraid somebody might blow up or something like that. But when you can have the conversations to help people feel respected and like a valued person, then that is in fact leading you down the path of leadership. Yeah. Well, that was a great lesson for you, even though at first it kind of took you aback. Yeah, oh, gosh, I, yes. that's that's what makes it an aha moment, I guess. Yeah. So anyway, that thank you for that story. Hey, I want to tell you clearly, I've just really enjoyed hearing your stories about EPA and about about NASA. And I was I'm really touched also by the thing you said right at the top about how you have a copy of the Constitution in your computer. And so you can refer to it. And I think that is a reminder of the dedication of government employees and especially of federal employees. And I think there's kind of some in our society, there's sometimes kind of this, this, uh, I don't know whether it's disdain for government and it slips over into, into government employees. And I think it's really important for people to realize what a tremendous service people do. I mean, we thank military people for their service. I think we should thank government people for their service too. So I want to thank you for your 30 years of service to our country. Well, Steve, thank you for that. And it's been great chatting with you. I love to getting to know you a little bit on this podcast, uh, sharing some of my stories about delivering IT in space, as well as my career in the federal government. And, and I appreciate you honoring the federal civil servants as well. They they do some amazing things, and it's really cool. So get to know a Fed or a state yeah, fed, yeah. A state employee or even a local government employee or a tribal government employee. Get to know them. We are the person that really does care about making sure you get what you need. We are as frustrated by bureaucracy, too. Right. But most of us will really give our heart and soul to give you what you need from our government agency. The Data Cloud World Tour is making 21 stops around the globe so you can learn about the latest innovations at Snowflake's Data Cloud at a venue near you. Join your fellow data leaders at one of our full-day events to network with Snowflake customers and technology partners, attend educational breakout sessions, and learn how to drive more value from your data. Find an event near you at www.snowflake.com slash data dash cloud dash world dash tour.